I'm going to offer a continuation, really, of what Brother Howard shared with us last night with the goal of using the scriptures to kind of lay out what we believe is a proper view uh, of the end times. And we probably could spend a week on this topic and still not cover everything. And so uh, I'm trying to boil it all down to an hour and a half and so certainly will not cover everything. But we do have a book available. It's actually a scriptures outline study reference that Brother Howard mentioned last night called Then Comes the End. And it's going to have probably most of the scriptures that I'm going to be sharing and, and then some. Uh, and I'm also going to have a handout that I can provide to you afterward that will be a help. We are going to cover a lot of scriptures, so uh, we do want to show from the scriptures uh, this perspective. I want to start with a passage that is not often considered to be an end times passage. But I feel like that it will help us to kind of bring this all into focus and to provide us with a lens through which to view these events of the end and where it's all headed. And it, it involves the eternal purpose of God. Paul says in Ephesians 3, To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. And then he says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations for you. And if we can get at least a glimpse of what it is that Paul is referring to here, I think it'll help us to really see the meaning and the purpose and all that we're going to be discussing. And he gives us a couple of indications. Number one, there's a multifaceted kind of wisdom that has been hidden in God that is to be revealed and has been revealed in some sense through Christ. But there is a further expression of it through the church and a demonstration to the principalities and the powers. And I think we get some indication from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he speaks of this same wisdom. We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, which are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, a hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. And if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So whatever it was that was accomplished in Christ Jesus, it was accomplished through his death. And a form of wisdom was revealed and demonstrated that caused the rulers of this age to regret having done what they did. Something was released when that happened. And we think of where James talks about the two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom that comes from below that is self-seeking. And then there's that wisdom from above that is pure and gentle, peaceable, willing to yield. And 
Brother Zach and others have talked already this week about that the nature of God is not what it has always seemed to be, but rather his essence was expressed most fully in the self-sacrificial love and death of Christ. And so there is another kind of wisdom that has not been readily apparent for all time that has now been made evident through Christ and that is going to be made evident in greater expression even uh, in the culmination of history through the church. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says that just like we are flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, shared in that same nature that through his death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who all their lifetime were in bondage to the fear of death. So what was it that was accomplished in Christ Jesus? We talked about, even in Brother Kevin's teaching yesterday, that the forces and the institutions and the systems of this world have been ruled through a certain form of power. And we are born hardwired with this survival instinct, this instinct towards self-preservation. So because of that, we have this inherent fear of death in all of its forms, whether it's ultimately physical death, whether it's persecution, tribulation, or even just the death to our self-image, the fear of humbling ourselves and being exposed for who we really are. And that causes us to kind of shrink back in fear. And it's this same dynamic of self-preservation that has created the competition that the world is marked by. It's why these forces fight and compete with one another. And what Paul is saying here is that there is a power that was released in the death of Christ that is stronger than the power of death. That ultimately, we don't have to be afraid of that anymore. Because with his death, he showed that there is a power, as Solomon said, and the power of love is as strong as death, and the many waters of death cannot quench it. That's what was revealed, and if the rulers of this world had realized that that veil was going to be pulled back, that the earth was going to shake, and people were going to suddenly realize this is the Son of God. This is the nature of God. This is who God really is. And so I don't have to be afraid anymore either because I can participate. I can die myself and become hidden with Christ in God. And so I don't have to fear the one who can destroy the body but cannot destroy the soul. But I'm going to have reverence and honor for the one who judges righteously, the one who has made available to me this power that transcends death. I'm going to yield and express through my life and my death that power. And that's just what Peter was saying in 1 Peter 2. This is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering, when you do good and suffer, and you take it patiently, this is commendable before God, because to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, we don't have to suffer. 
Is that what it says? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And then it talks about the way that he suffered. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And you get the feeling this is what Paul was even talking about when he says, I fill up in my body what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That passage kind of rubs us sometimes because we think, what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, really, in a sense, nothing in the sense that it would make this power available to us, that we could become a part of that sacrifice. We could unite ourselves to it. But if we listen to what he's saying to the Ephesians, he's saying that the way we fill up in our body what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is to become that corporate expression, to demonstrate that same power that was released in the death of Christ as the church, thus filling up in our flesh what was lacking to bring about the eternal purpose of God on the earth. That's a very short preface, but are we at least kind of on the same page here? And do we see then how that's important? I mean, if the culmination of history, if the return of the Lord is not arbitrary, if it's not just something that's unknowable, unattainable, but rather it's something that is based on the fulfillment or the culmination of a certain purpose, then our whole view of the end times has to be in light of that purpose, doesn't it? How does this all add up in such a way that this is accomplished? This question of the tribulation, the end times, but specifically the tribulation and whether or not believers will experience it, is one that, as I understand it, as our fellowship was really wrestling with these questions, it forced us to go back and really re-examine all of the revelations that God had given in light of this. And really, a proper view of the end times ought to impact all aspects of our ministry. It should impact our evangelism. It would impact our approach to discipleship, the level of commitment expected of those that would participate. I mean, if you think about it, does the U.S. Army use the same recruiting techniques as one of the big four accounting firms? Of course not. Does the U.S. Marines offer a training program that is essentially the same as Google or Microsoft or Facebook? I don't know of any corporations that require a four-year minimum enlistment period. What I'm trying to say is that one of these entities is preparing for war and the other one's not. And so it makes a difference in all these areas. We're looking for soldiers, ultimately. Somebody who has what it takes to endure to the end. Jesus in Luke 14 says, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with his 10,000 to meet him who comes with 20,000. 
or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. And he goes on to say, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we recognize that refrain, don't we, from the first three chapters of Revelation, speaking to the churches in the end. And what is this reference to salt? What is that referring to? So if the corporate expression of Christ has lost its savor, it's of no value, it's of no use. And what he's saying here is that if we don't properly consider where this is all headed and what it's going to require of us, that when things start to go in a direction we weren't anticipating, we're going to become overwhelmed. We're going to say, wait a second, I wasn't thinking this was going to happen. And we're going to be inclined to try and find a place of compromise or to try and make peace. But I think Paul makes it clear that in those times, the only peace that's going to be found from that standpoint is the one that precedes sudden destruction. Amen. It's going to be too late for that at that point. I think before we dig into scriptures, it's important to make a point, and Brother Howard referenced this last night, uh, about the nature of biblical prophecy. And you know, biblical prophecy is not like, say, astrological prophecy, where we just have these kind of random prophecies about unrelated future events. But if we look at the scriptures, we see a continuity of prophecy from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, Old Testament to New Testament. We see a continuity all leading to a culmination. And not only are those events all connected, but we see greater and greater progressive fulfillment as we go through the scriptures. So we see what Brother Howard referred to last night as a progressive continuum of prophecy. The scriptures offer numerous examples of this, and I, I don't have time to go into all of them, but I'll give one just for illustration's sake. Uh, in Matthew 2, says, when Joseph arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. What prophecy was fulfilled there? What prophecy is he referring to? He's referring to the one in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, where it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so we see that this reference in Hosea first references the nation of Israel, the natural Israel and their exodus out of Egypt. But then it has progressive fulfillment, according to Matthew chapter 2, in Christ, and the man Christ Jesus. And then we see multiple references, and some of you have even made these references in your testimonies this week, about the body of Christ. You know, Paul references it, the writer of Hebrews, that really the exodus out of Egypt is to serve as a type or instructive of the church in our exodus out of the Egyptian culture. And so we can see, just in this example, 
that that prophecy was fulfilled continually and progressively, leading to a certain culmination. Jesus makes this clear when he says in Matthew 24, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. So he's prophesying the events of the end. And he says, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains, they aren't just these random kind of contractions that, that don't serve any purpose. There's a continuation. They grow gradually more frequent and gradually more intense until the point of birth. And so Jesus himself is saying that when we're talking about the end, we need to look at it in the sense of birth pains, something continually and progressively coming to a greater expression. And why is this important when we're looking at biblical prophecy? Because it helps us to avoid some of the confusions when it appears that some of these prophecies have a natural fulfillment of some sort in history. Uh, we can acknowledge with a progressive continuum that even though something may have been fulfilled in part, that there yet may be a greater fulfillment, a progressive fulfillment of that event. So I think we have enough of an introduction to dig in here. Some of the most horrifying imagery in all of the scriptures, in Daniel, the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, describe the great tribulation. Does everybody know or does anybody know where that word tribulation has its root? It's in the Latin word tribulum. Does anybody know what a tribulum is? Have you ever seen one? The ones that I've seen, it's this kind of heavy wooden sled type object. And on the bottom of it is adhered these sharp pieces of stone and flint and other sharp types of objects. And what it's used for is you place wheat that's been harvested on a threshing floor and typically some sort of a horse or a cow drags this sled, this tribulum, over that harvested wheat on the threshing floor. And the purpose for that is that it separates the chaff from the grain. That's that process, and, and the word tribulatio, I don't know how it's pronounced in Latin, but it simply means the act of separation. And so when we think about the tribulation, we have to think about it in terms of something's being separated, and we have a pretty clear picture with this tribulum. And who can think of that passage without thinking about John the Baptist saying that Jesus is coming? Amen. With the threshing floor, with this winnowing fan or winnowing fork, depending on the translation, in his hand to separate the wheat from the chaff. And I think it's also somebody, several people have mentioned this week already. When we look at the Temple of Solomon, this is the, many feel is the type for the glorified New Testament church that God will fill with his glory. Where was that built? the threshing floor of Ornan. The type for the glorified New Testament church where the Lord says he will put his name was built in a place of tribulation. And so with that, let's dig into 
to Matthew 24 a little bit. I know Brother Howard shared some passages yesterday, but I'm going to repeat some of them. I think it'll be helpful. Jesus is asked on the Mount of Olives by his disciples, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And as he's answering, he says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation. That's ethnos against ethnos. Kingdom against kingdom. Famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. And these are just the beginning of sorrows. They're going to deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to essentially the church. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So whoever is experiencing this is hated somehow for the name of Christ. Many false Christs will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of most will grow cold. Remember the eternal purpose, an expression on the part of the church of the power of love as being stronger than the power of death? And what's the problem that Jesus says we have in the end? It's a lack of love. The love of most has grown cold. And so what is the church to express in those times, to be a vessel of? And he says, but he who endures to the end of this will be saved. And that's why it's important, as Brother Howard mentioned yesterday, to know what the end has in store. Because he's saying that it's those who endure to the end that will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. And then he goes on to describe the great tribulation. So these are, these are all the beginning of birth pains. These are the beginning of sorrows. Let those who are in the mountains flee. Let him who is in the field not go back to even get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and nursing. Pray that your flight not be in winter. There will be a great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. Unless those days were cut short, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And there's a key term he's about to use. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the great tribulation that has just been referred to, See if this, what he says now, sounds familiar to anyone. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does anybody have Occam's razor handy? Do we remember what that is? That we create a multiplication of entities when we have a deteriorating paradigm? And that 
really the most simple solution is the one we ought to consider first? Well, let's compare what Jesus just said to a few other passages that we'll all recognize. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He says in 2 Thessalonians, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together with him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. I'll point out that not only do those two passages, but also Matthew 24, when they refer or reference the coming of the Lord, it's the word parousia, which is the word that is most often used to describe the second coming of Christ. All three of those use the same terminology. What happens when we apply Occam's razor to those passages? It, it sounds a lot like the same thing, doesn't it? We have the Lord coming down from heaven. We have a trumpet sounding. We have the elect being gathered and being carried up into the clouds. And then the last passage that's typically refers to the rapture uh, which is what I believe Paul is describing here, says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. So we can all acknowledge that we have parallels in Jesus's, uh, the ending of this passage in Matthew 24, with virtually all other scriptural accounts of the events of the end. So he says, after the tribulation, we have the second coming and then the rapture. The Son of Man comes in the clouds and gathers together the elect. Now that passage is clearly, uh, you can see why that would be problematic for somebody who did not adhere to the chronology that Jesus uses in this passage. Because not only does Jesus lay out all those events for us clearly, but he gives us a specific chronology for those events. And so if whatever our theological construct was, was not consistent with what Jesus is saying here, then we would have to multiply entities. We'd have to find some other way that maybe he's not talking about that, okay? There are two primary objections to this passage referring to the end times, okay? And one of them, Brother Howard touched on last night. Some say that he's not actually talking about the end times. What he's prophesying is the siege and destruction of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70 by Titus and the Romans, where they went into Jerusalem, they sacked the city, they destroyed the temple. There were over a million people were killed, most of them Jews. And they say this is, this is what Jesus is referring to. And I think we could certainly acknowledge that there are some parallels in what Jesus is speaking. This term, by the way, this, this perspective is called, Brother Howard referenced, preterism. Preterism just simply means past events or something that's bygone. We can acknowledge that there does seem to be parallels 
with what Jesus is describing here in Josephus' account of the sack of, of Jerusalem in AD 70. But remember what we said about the progressive continuum of prophecy. I think we would acknowledge that there was a fulfillment of what Jesus is speaking of in AD 70. But we run into a problem in viewing that as the great tribulation because the time of Jacob's trouble, as it's referred to, Jesus says that there's never has been to this time or ever will be a tribulation greater. And those of us who can look back to the middle of the last century at the Holocaust of World War II, where six million Jews were killed, we look back on that and we have a hard time viewing the events of AD 70 as being the great tribulation, amen. And so what we're seeing here isn't something that was fulfilled and never will be again, but we're seeing birth pains. We're seeing these contractions. We're seeing these partial fulfillments that are leading to something that truly will be worse than anything we've ever encountered before, amen. There's another objection to that, and I think this is one I can certainly empathize with and relate to uh, even more than the other. I've heard people say that, well, if Christians are going to live through the tribulation, then does that mean that the bridegroom has prepared his bride for the wedding and then as soon as she arrives to the altar that he is going to beat his bride? And how could that be so? I mean, and they, they'll cite passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. And there's another one in Revelation 3 that I'll get into a little later. But Brother Zach provided a good framework for this. Um, I think there are a number of ways we have to understand wrath. And we have to make biblical distinctions between the wrath of God and what is described throughout the scriptures as the wrath of the devil. Uh, in Revelation 12, it says that the devil has come to those on the earth having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. And so we wouldn't view the tribulation as God just finally boiling over, just, just getting so fed up with the rebellion that he comes down onto the earth and kills everybody. That's not how we would view it. But we would view it as the release of Satan from all restraints, as Brother Howard talked about last night, coming out and, and unleashing his fury on God and all that is worshiped, the people of God. Amen. His time is short. And I believe that it's this same wrath that the devil releases that is ultimately going to be his own demise. And that seems to be what the Lord is saying to Satan in Ezekiel when he says, I brought fire from your midst and it devoured you. And so we see throughout history, even in the death of Christ, we see the, Satan unleashing his wrath only to have it turned against him. Amen. And I feel like we're seeing the same thing here. It isn't the bridegroom beating the bride. It's that same serpent that beat the bridegroom at Calvary. 
that's going to beat his corporate expression as well. And Jesus wasn't snatched away from Golgotha at the last minute. The victory came through his death, through taking on that suffering and doing so in a way that Peter described as we already talked about, without reviling in return, without threatening. Something was expressed, something was released, something was demonstrated, amen, through that death. And he wants his church to exemplify and express and demonstrate that same thing against that same serpent that's going to unleash his wrath on us too. Amen. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy set before him. And what was the joy set before him? Was it that he wasn't going to have to suffer death? No. He goes on and says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It was the glory of the resurrection that was coming. Amen. It was that he knew the rulers of this age didn't know, but God knew when he came in human flesh what was going to be released. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what was going to be made available to his people. And so seeing the chains falling off of the people of God, seeing people who all their lifetime were in bondage to the fear and the threat of death, amen, seeing those chains come off, amen, and then uniting in that context of self-sacrificial love for one another and for God was the joy that was set before him that enabled him to endure the cross, amen. And we see, I mean, the history of the church nor of the scriptures give us any indication of any other outcome for the church. When Peter says that to this we were called, I mean, we look at the history of the, of the church and we think about how the church has thrived in times of persecution, much more than in times of prosperity. Tertullian, I think, said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church, and I think I would take exception to that just given that we know that Christ and his word are the seed, but it does seem like that blood was the fuel that fueled the fire that caused this to turn the world upside down, you know, through Europe, through the West, and, and all over the world as God's people were persecuted. And I feel like that's something we need to consider. But whatever the devil's purpose is in bringing tribulation to the people of God, whatever his purpose is in bringing wrath against the people of God, we've got to think about what Jesus says in his parable of the wheat and the tares to see what God's purpose is in allowing that to come to pass. He says the wheat and the tares, they're going to grow up together for a long season, side by side. The false and the true. But in the end, they'll be brought to the threshing floor, separated and revealed for what they truly are. What does that winnowing fan do? It takes that grain that's been separated from the chaff and fans it up in the air into the wind, into the breeze. And all that is false, all that is of no use or value will just blow away. It doesn't have any substance. It just blows away. But that which has substance, that grain which has weight to it, will just fall back down to the ground. And it will be revealed that this is the grain. This is the making. This is what constitutes that one loaf 
of the body of Christ. It's that process of separation. And so whatever the devil intends with these blows, he tends to bring death's reductions against us to reduce us gradually evermore until there's nothing left of us and we just wither away and die. But what God intends, amen, is for those blows to slough off anything that separates us from love, anything that divides us, amen, that stands between us and our brothers and sisters and God. And he takes those same blows and cuts that all away until the only thing left is love, amen. And that's the purpose of God in tribulation. So what do we see as, as transpiring in the end? I think when most people think about the end times, they think about the book of Revelation. And so what I thought I would do is give a verse by verse, chapter by chapter, <laughs> exposition of the book of Revelation. We're going to take the rest of the day and then some tomorrow, but as much as I would like to do that, I'm uh, vastly ill-equipped to do so. <laughs> Which, which brings me to the, I was going to give you a qualifier that I'm not up here because I'm the expert on this topic. Uh, I am passionate about it, but I, I certainly can't tell you what every little event or circumstance that's outlined in Revelation signifies, but I do think that we can have a clear enough view of it uh, that something can start to come into focus and we can glean valuable insights from the study of the book of Revelation. In the interest of time, I'm going to focus on the two chapters that I think uh, people think of when, they, when we talk about the Great Tribulation, the Millennium, and the Rapture. The two key passages are the 19th and 20th chapter of Revelation. And so I'm going to spend most of my time there. I think that one thing, and I'm going to show this, but one problem I think people run into when it comes to the book of Revelation is that they view it as being a chronological account. And so, you know, if chapter 18 follows 17 and 19 follows 18 and 20 follows 19, then it's, we're talking about events unfolding chronologically. But what I'm going to show you is that that's actually not what's intended, but uh, it's actually more like you're, you're kind of zooming in and out of a period of time and viewing it from different angles, okay? Um, let's say that I was going to build a building and I provided a set of blueprints to the, the builder and on the first page it showed the front of the building and then if you flip to the next page it's the side of the building. I guess you could interpret that. I mean, if I gave that to a, a contractor and then I, I came back and I, I saw two buildings, the front of one looked like what I intended the front to be and the front of another was the side of what I was hoping the first building would be, that, that would be one way to look at it. Or you could say, maybe this is showing me different angles and views of the same thing. And we're gonna show that that actually is what uh, is intended uh, with Revelation. And it, it, it can't be supported uh, scripturally otherwise. It, it must. Let's dig in here. Because I'm going to be reading a considerable amount of scripture, if you feel to, you can follow along with me if that would help you. But I'm going to start in Revelation 19, starting in verse 17. And 
This is a passage that is really universally viewed as describing Armageddon, the tribulation leading to Armageddon. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, of captains, of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." And if we go on to chapter 20, we'll notice that what's being described in chapter 20 ends with something that sounds very similar to what we just read. So he starts in 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal on him, that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, and I'll get back into some of this momentarily, but now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as of the sand of the sea. Now listen to what he describes here and tell me if this doesn't sound exactly like what was just described in the 19th chapter. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I want to show you something. Well, before I do, Brother Ben, we're getting close to the point where I want to see that graphic. But before I show you the graphic, I want to make a point. Most of your Bibles, if you look at Revelation 19, 
in what's universally understood as the Armageddon, and you look at the latter part of Revelation 20, which many people believe describes a second subsequent cataclysmic battle, you'll find the same scripture reference to Ezekiel chapter 39. And I'm not going to share that whole passage, but I want to show you some parallels just to make that clear. So in 19, he says that, he says to the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and captains of mighty men, horses, and those who sit on them. And this is, he's, he's talking about gathering together to the, the supper, which is seen as, the, as the, the, the Armageddon. In Ezekiel 39, do you, do you recognize that? It says here in verse 17, Speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal. He goes on and says that you may eat flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth. He goes on and says, you shall uh, eat fat to your full, drink blood to your drunk. At my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, you shall be filled at my table with horses, riders, mighty men, and all the men of war, says the Lord God. Is the, can there be any question that 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 prophecy in Ezekiel 39 is what is being referenced specifically in both Revelation 19 and 20. You'll, you'll see that, that both have that cross-reference. Uh, Revelation 20, however, makes reference to Gog and Magog gathering together to battle. Gog and Magog appears in this Ezekiel 39 passage. That's where it comes from. And, and all that is, it, Gog and Magog is just what is understood as the, the enemies of Israel, uh, the, those that, that, that oppose Israel coming from the place of the north, which they, I believe that, that that was kind of their, their view of what was in the north was the, the kind of the enemy, the evil spiritual forces. But it's talking about those that oppose Christ gathering together to, to, to make war against Christ. And he references Gog and Magog, okay? The problem is, is that we can't find anywhere in Ezekiel 39 where a thousand-year period of time is referenced. There's, there's, no, there's no way to read that into these passages. And where this ends, that I just read you from Ezekiel 39, the very, if I turn the page, it talks about the restoration of Israel, the new city and the new temple. It prophesies the new heavens and the new earth, coming right after what was just described here in both Revelation 19 and in Revelation 20. Are we clear so far? Following me at least? This, I know this is a lot to digest. Um, let's, let's take a look at that graphic to orient us for the rest of this. If I move away, you can't hear me. Um, oh, imagine that. <laughs> uh, so th this here, what you're seeing is, is, is I guess, probably 
one of the more predominant views of uh, the end times. It's the premillennial view. And what this view says is that we have the coming of Christ followed by the church age. Uh, there will be a, a revealing of the man of sin. And this is, this is where it puts the rapture. The pre This is the tribulation. So you have a pre-tribulation rapture. The tribulation, the second coming of Christ, followed by a thousand-year millennium, followed by the release of Satan, Gog and Magog, there in Revelation 20, followed by the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? This is, this is the premillennial view. If, if you view, and this, the only reason this is viewed this way is because of viewing Revelation 20 as chronologically following Revelation 19. Now, if we, I, I'm going to propose that we're looking at a set of blueprints for the same building. We're looking at two views of the same. And so if, if we, uh, Brother Ben, will you, will you show uh, the, the realized millennium? Okay, do you see what happens here when we, when we remove the double vision? Okay, if, if Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 are describing different angles of the same event, this is what happens. Does that, does that seem to add up to you? <laughs> so we have a church age here. We have a release of Satan here, followed by a time of tribulation that's described in 19 this way in 20 with Gog and Magog, same prophecy from Ezekiel 39, followed by new heavens and new earth. Okay? Now, we'll get into some of the problems with that, but I just want to use this illustration to show you that if we correct our double vision and acknowledge that we're looking at two sides of the same building, Occam's razor seems to apply. Are, are we following that? Now I'll deal with some of the, the problems that are popping in people's heads. And I may ask you to go back and forth on that, depending on if we need to illustrate something here. Uh, so he talks about there in, in Revelation 20, the first resurrection. This is the first resurrection. Um, and that, that first resurrection, in that first resurrection, uh, those who have part in it will reign for a thousand years with Christ. Okay? Um, so we automatically have a problem with the view here because we say that... Uh, when are the, what's the first resurrection if you're saying that the church age is the millennium? Well, what is the first resurrection? What does Paul say to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26? He says, Christ suffered that he would be the first to rise from the dead and proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Let's keep that in mind. Um, so can we, in light of that, deny that whatever the first resurrection is, it has to at least start with Christ. He's the first to be resurrected from the dead. And so what about those saints that are reigning with Christ for a thousand years? It says there'll be a resurrected uh, group of saints, that, that they'll take part in this first resurrection. 
So how does that line up with what I'm proposing here? Well, let's listen to Paul in Ephesians speaking to the church. He says that having been been dead, past tense, in transgression and sin, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Past tense. Part of the resurrection. With Christ, made us alive with Christ, though we were dead. Even when we were dead in transgressions and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Amen. He goes on in Romans 5. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace in the gift of righteousness reign in life through Christ? And even in, he goes on a little bit in 6 and talks about that those who have died to sin have been freed from sin. If we have died with Christ, we believe we shall live with him, uh, knowing that he's been raised from the dead and dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Likewise, you reckon yourself dead indeed to sin. Uh, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace." So, I've got good news for some of us in this room. If we have died to this reign of sin, amen, and we've been made alive through the resurrection of Christ, this is the resurrection, amen. We are living in the resurrection. We are reigning with Christ in heavenly places. And can't you... Can't you feel it? I mean, are we battling against flesh and blood? Who are we battling against? Principality, the same principalities and powers that Paul says we're going to make a demonstration to, amen, in fulfilling the eternal purpose of God, amen. And what kind of weapons are we using? Carnal weapons? Or those weapons that are mighty in God for the bringing down of those strongholds, amen. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've seen this enacted in our midst this week. You, you see people, and those of you who have stood up and, and had these tremendous victories, was, did you not feel initially this instinct of self-preservation? Amen. You, you knew that God was calling you to take a step. You knew God wanted you to stand up and, and call a curse on this flesh. But there was something in you that said, I don't know. You felt that, that instinct towards self-preservation, that fear of death. Amen. But when you made the decision to stand up 
and declare that flesh as good as dead? Did it not feel like you had a spiritual sword in your hand? Amen. To stand up and lay waste to those strongholds of the mind and the principalities and powers that would come against you? Amen. And did you not see the chain reaction that happened when you stood up and made that declaration, made that good confession? Did you not see that others were sitting in their chair trembling, wondering, oh God, I feel you speaking to me, but I don't know if I can do it. Amen. And then this one stands up and humbles himself. Amen. And then the principalities and powers are put to an open shame because they show that we don't have to be afraid of that kind of death to our image. Amen. Because there is a love that overcomes it. There's a love that's stronger. And so those principalities and strongholds in the minds of all these people around you, they're laid ways too. And then they stand up. Amen. And get a victory. Amen. We all felt it. I was sitting there. I, fe I felt strongholds in my own life fall to the ground in the wake of the power that was released and some of these brand new ones standing up and saying, amen, it's going to be different from now on. Amen. amen. I felt a certain tendency. Amen. I don't even know what to say, but I feel like I need to get up here and humble myself and make an open demonstration. Amen. Of this resurrection power that God has filled me with. Are we reigning with Christ in heavenly places according to his eternal purpose? Amen. Are the rulers of this world Amen. Do they regret having released this? Amen. There's a place where that fear of death and that devil is not reigning anymore. And it's right here in the midst of these people. Amen. He does not reign. We are reigning with Christ now in heavenly places. And it's, it's this same, it will get worse. It will be given greater expression. Amen. We'll be tested. But it's with these same weapons amen, that we're going to endure all the way to the end and be a light, amen, to those who have all their lifetime been in bondage to that same fear. Go ahead. Yes, sir. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it calls the resurrection of Jesus Christ the first fruits. It says Christ is risen, the first fruits. And the first fruits, based on Leviticus 23, 13, and Exodus 23, 16, also Numbers 28, 26, the first fruit was a feast that was celebrated 50 days after Passover. By the time of the New Testament, what was this first fruits feast called? Shavuot, Pentecost. Jesus, his resurrection was called the first fruits. But that first fruits that he experienced when he came out on the third day from the garden tomb is what was fully experienced across a multitude on the day of Pentecost. So in James 1, 17 through 18, he said, God gave us birth that we might be the first fruits among his creatures. Amen. God gave us birth that we might be. It. It's a past tense reality. Amen. And if, the, if Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, then James is saying they also are already in this resurrection first fruits. Romans 8:23, we also have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8:9 through 11, however you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive for righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit. To receive the Holy Spirit in the Pentecost fashion Amen. is to receive the first fruits, specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And so the, the second coming of Christ concludes the first resurrection. This is, that's what he speaks of a period of time. This is the first resurrection, that period of time. So you may be wanting me to check my math because it's been more than a thousand years since the crucifixion of Christ. The only place that thousand years is mentioned specifically actually in the entirety of scripture is in Revelation chapter 20. Um, I don't say that to discount it. Uh, one passage is enough. But we need to consider the context that that's spoken in. We're talking about a book that is a vision, okay? It's full of symbolism and symbolic imagery. We have in that same passage uh, a spiritual entity being bound by another spiritual entity coming from heaven into a bottomless pit with a chain and a key. Does that seem possible in a natural sense? And so we're dealing with, with symbolism here. Um, we have to use the context. Peter, using that same number, says that a thousand years to the Lord are as one day. And one day is a thousand years. And so from this, I believe we can conclude that the thousand year period of time constitutes the day of grace. Amen. It's the day called today where we can hear his voice. Amen. It's the day when the church is the corporate embodiment of the living Christ on the earth. Amen. This is the day of grace. This is that period of time. And uh, there are at least 30 other instances throughout the scriptures where the number 1,000 is used symbolically. The number 1,000 in, in, I believe, Hebrew terms just constitutes kind of a, a period of immensity or completion, the fullness of something. Um, in this case, it just really seems to be that it's speaking of a finite length of time that has begun and will have an ending. Okay? And I think that the whole of Scripture supports that, that perspective. Another problem you may have is that Satan is supposed to be bound. Satan is supposed to be bound during the time of the millennium. And we talked a little bit about this last night. But what, what does it say he's bound from? Deceiving the nations. And that word nations, ethnos, two-thirds of the times that that word is used in the New Testament, it is used in reference to the Gentiles. And with the coming of Christ with his death, his burial, and resurrection, wasn't that middle wall of separation torn down and salvation then came to the Gentiles? Amen. It's that passage I asked you to, to keep in mind before where he said that speaking of the first resurrection, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And so there was a certain deception. Salvation was not available outside of the people of Israel until the time of Christ. And uh, 
the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Amen. Those who uh, were living in the land of the shadow of death, a great light has dawned. The gospel has gone forth to the nations, and Satan has been bound in the sense that he cannot deceive those nations any longer from being able to receive this gospel. John 12 uh, says, Jesus says, now the prince of this world is cast out. That word cast out is, I believe it's pronounced ekbalo. That's the exact same word in Revelation chapter 20 where it says the devil is cast into the abyss. Amen. With the coming of Jesus, there was a sense that the devil had become bound from the magnitude of deception that he once brought to bear. Amen. And then there would be a time, a day of grace where the gospel could go forth to all of God's people. And in that view, we can see that instead of the release of Satan being here and, and here, the release of Satan is the tribulation. It is the short time of release where he is released to once again deceive the nations, culminating in Armageddon and the second coming. I hope I'm not committing any heresy here. I have some people up here in the front to, to just make sure. We've got a, I think there's a 15-second delay on the live feed. So I was... I told Brother Ben, that's, that's, my, that's my heresy. Uh, if I spit out any heresy, they've got 15 seconds to, Brother Howard will go tell them, no, cut it off. And, <laughs> and then we can, we can get me back on course here. But uh, I promise it's not intentional. I'm just covering a lot here. So it might be good just to, to before I conclude uh, with some things here, some of you are probably wondering why I'm emphasizing certain points, and it's because there are really three predominant views about the millennium. Um, one of them is, is, Brother Ben, will you put the old, the first one back up here? Uh, one of them is this premillennial view. So this, this perspective says that there's going to be a rapture here, there's going to be a tribulation, and then there's going to be a future thousand-year millennium on the earth, okay? Um, and so they see this as being a, a future fulfillment. Um, and I've, I've already, I believe, spoken at great length about why I do not believe that to be true. Uh, and I do not believe Revelation 19 and 20 to be intended chronologically, which is where that comes from. Um, others, there's really two other predominant views, and both of them actually would agree with us that the church age is consistent with the millennium, uh, concurrent with the millennium. Um, one of those is a premillennial perspective. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, there's my heresy. Uh, Postmillennialism, which believes that that uh, the thousand years is not literal; it is the church age, uh, but that. The tribulation has kind of taken place. Uh, a lot of them believe that the tribulation took place at AD 70 and everything. And so that uh, ultimately what's going to happen is that through the influence of the gospel and of the church, uh, all the nations of the world and its institutions are going to gradually become Christian and the kingdom of God will be manifest on the earth in a political sense. Yeah. Right. Post-millennialist and his entire ministry 
degenerated down into a political action. You know, he was an abolitionist. He, the whole thing was to transform society through political means. Amen. Amen. I don't believe Jesus had any interest in, in renovating the kingdoms of this world when he came the first time. And I don't think he has any, any interest in it in the future either. And then the, the other one is called amillennialism, meaning no millennium. And they, I think they even take exception to that because they do believe that, uh, as we do, that the millennium is concurrent with the church age. Um, but they, they don't see things getting any better on the earth. And I think I could agree that, that in, in, in many ways that's true. Um, and so they, they kind of uh, relegate everything to, to this super celestial heaven. So, you know, nothing is actually, the, the body of Christ is not really reigning in a real sense on the earth. It's kind of happening at the same time uh, up in heaven. And uh, I think that that, in, in light of all that we've talked about, God's eternal purpose, um, even some of the things we felt here this week, uh, it feels like the body of, of Christ is reigning on the earth. Amen. Uh, and so if we, if we broaden our view and harmonize, I believe, with, with really the preponderance of Scripture, um, we'll see that it's not a kingdom, a millennial kingdom consigned to the future. It's not a millennial kingdom consigned to the heavens, uh, but it's the body of Christ reigning on the earth with Christ in a realized millennium. Of those three views I mentioned, one of them sees the church, as I've made a couple of references to already, as being spared from tribulation through a pre-tribulation rapture. I think I've already made a case for why I don't believe that to be scriptural. And I also would view it to be really kind of an abstraction when we think about what God's eternal purpose is. What he is trying to accomplish through the church does not seem to in any way support that perspective. Um, and so I, I, don't, I don't think we have any reason to believe that what Jesus is speaking of in, in Matthew 24 is any different from what Paul is referring to in First and Second Thessalonians as it relates to the rapture. It's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. I want to share something with you. Brother Joel shared with me a, a letter. Does, does everybody know who Corey Ten Boom is? Her and, and her family were in Holland during World War II and provided a place of refuge to the Jews. And because of that, were arrested by the uh, Gestapo and put in concentration camp. And so after World War II, she spent a lot of time traveling and speaking in different places abroad. And some of the people she met with actually were people in the, in the, uh, the Chinese church. And they spoke of a time in... Uh, 1949 that they were, were being brought under communism and all, all the American missionaries left and they came under some of the most intense persecution uh, that, that they had ever experienced. And, and that's, you know, this perspective of God not beating his bride, uh, somehow negating the fact that we could experience tribulation is really something we only have the luxury of saying in the West. You know, I mean, if, if, if God's beating his bride, um, then he must be beating his bride in China. He must be beating his bride in Pakistan and Iran and all these places where the church is absolutely suffering intense persecution, the likes of which has never been seen before. And so we can't possibly view that uh, as, as God beating his bride. But uh, one bishop in China said that the reason why they were so unprepared 
for the persecution they faced in 1949 was because they believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. He said, this is the bishop in China that I'm quoting, he said, we have failed. We should have made the people strong for persecution. Rather than telling them that Jesus would come first, and, he, and then he, he pleads, he says, tell the people to be strong in times of persecution. Tell them how to stand when the tribulation comes and to stand and not to faint. And in reference to what Corey Ten Boom referred as the false doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture, she had this to say. The world is deathly ill. It is dying. The great physician has already signed the death certificate. Yet there is still a great work for Christians to do. They are to be streams of living water, channels of mercy to those who are still in the world. It is possible for them to do this because they are overcomers. They are ambassadors for Christ. They are representatives from heaven to this dying world. And because of our presence here, things will change. My sister Betsy and I were in the Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbrück because we committed the crime of loving Jews. 700 of us from Holland, France, Russia, Poland, and Belgium were herded into a room built for 200. And as far as I know, Betsy and I were the only two representatives of heaven in that room. We may have been the Lord's only representatives in that place of hatred, and yet because of our presence there, things changed. Jesus said in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And she said, we too are to be overcomers, bringing the light of Jesus into a world filled with darkness and hate. You would have had a hard time convincing Corey Ten Boom that we were not living in a time of tribulation and that Christians would be spared from it. Amen. And if you read her, her story, as most of you probably have, remember they go into that, the, the place that we're all staying at Ravensbrook, and her and her sister get there, and all through the night, all they hear is people cursing each other, slapping each other. I mean, it was, it was just an absolute uh, disaster. And then over a short period of time, of her sister mainly just loving people in return and just exemplifying and expressing this overcoming power of love over death, it transformed the whole place. It turned the, one of the darkest places in the universe into a place where there was light. And she goes on to say that she's often frightened by the biblical descriptions of the tribulation and the persecution that is coming. And she sees them coming to pass right before her eyes, but she says, now I can tell you, if you too are afraid, that I have just read the last pages of the book. I can now come to shouting, hallelujah, hallelujah, for I have found where it is written that Jesus said, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Amen. I'm going to close with a few passages here. In Revelation 3.10, I want to give a picture. And, and, and my ending is really exactly the way Brother Howard ended his last night, but I feel in light of all that's been said to reemphasize some of this. Uh, in Revelation 3.10, Jesus says that those who endure patiently will be kept from the hour of trial that will come on the earth. And that's one of those passages that's used to uh, 
say that the, the Christians won't suffer uh, tribulation. But that term, keep from, that he uses there is actually a tarot ek. And I think we can learn something by looking at the only other instance in the New Testament where that term is used. Jesus, in John 17, in his prayer, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Take, meaning lift them off of the ground. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect, taroek, them from the evil one. Amen. There's a different kind of protection that he's offering to his people. Amen. That's the same one that's referenced in Isaiah 26, where he says, Go, my people, and enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while while this wrath has passed by. Amen. And we think about even the, during the Exodus, uh, where they whisked away before the plagues that came upon Egypt. Or was there a light in Goshen? Was there, was there a place that they could go to, a place of refuge where those plagues would pass them by? Amen. And I'm going to read also from that passage that Brother Howard shared, the tribulation psalm, Psalm 91. This is, gives us a picture of God's vision for the church in the time of tribulation. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. And I believe, as was pointed out by Brother Ossie in a recent wedding, that word wings is kanaf, which uh, in speaking of the, the marriage of Ruth and Boaz signified a covenant of marriage. It's a covenant term uh, taking you under his wings. His truth shall be your shield and buckler, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that walks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand. You're seeing this happening at your side, at your right hand, they're falling. But it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes will you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, those who have made the Lord their dwelling place in this sense, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your, your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone." You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent, and you shall trample them underfoot. He's not saying that he's going to spare us from physical tribulation or even death. Amen. But he's saying, like we started this whole thing with, that we don't need to fear the one who can only kill the body but not the soul. Amen. There's a place where we can be hidden in Christ with God. 
Amen. That none of that can touch us. Just like it couldn't touch Jesus. Just like the grave could not hold him. Amen. But instead it released an even greater power. Amen. Into the world. And he's saying the same thing here of us. Because, and now this is God speaking. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. Remember what we talked about, about the name. Amen. And that word known is yada. It, it is the, the way Adam knew Eve. Amen. It's not just knowing what his name is. Amen. It's entering in to that intimate relationship with the essence of God, of that name. It's bearing the mark of that name and being under the covenant of his wings. Amen. Because you've done that, you're going to call on me in that time and I'm going to answer you. Amen. I will be with you in trouble. I won't whisk you away from it. I'll be with you in trouble. And I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What is that word salvation in Hebrew that's used in this passage? Yeshua. I will show him. This is the Old Testament. I'm going to show him Yeshua, his place of refuge. Amen. The body of Christ, the secret place. Amen. Where we can be sealed by his name in baptism, and that body can become our refuge and our fortress, amen, where we can find our lives truly hidden with Christ and God. Last thing I'll, I'll share here in Acts 3, Peter speaks of the restoration of all things. He says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive or retain until the times of the restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. So will the second coming of Christ be followed by all the Old Testament prophecies of Israel being fulfilled? Not according to this passage. He says that the, the coming of Christ, the restoration of all things, the institution of the new heavens and the new earth and the dissolving of this old creation, amen, is coming with the return of Christ where all things spoken by all of the holy prophets from time beginning are fulfilled. And so if we're looking for a natural manifestation of these things, we're looking in the wrong place. Amen. There is a spiritual Fulfillment. There is a progressive, continual fulfillment. All things are going to culminate and be fulfilled when the church, when the body of Christ expresses and demonstrates his eternal purpose to the world. Amen. And I'll, I'll end with this. Peter says, in response to scoffers who say, where is the promise of his parousia? Where is the promise of his coming? Beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, that not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But that day, the day of the Lord, will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, 
and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The parousia, the second coming, is followed by the elements melting with fervent heat, not by a thousand-year millennium. Melting with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, amen, this is the joy that's set before us. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. At the time of the restoration of all things, amen, when the church reaches that full stature, Amen. When the church becomes that corporate demonstration of the wisdom of God, amen, the power of God's love to overcome the powers of death in the twinkling of an eye, amen, we'll all be caught up in the air, us and the rest of those who have died in Christ, amen. And finally, we're going to see him face to face, amen. We're going to see him face to face and we're going to be changed and we're going to finally be all this striving, all this, all that we're doing here. Oh God, deliver me from this body of death. Amen. There'll be no more dying daily to it. Amen. In that moment, all that we've striven for, all that, all that this has been about, we're going to be transformed and we're finally going to be like him. I believe one of the big reasons the Lord has brother Evan emphasized more about the proper understanding of the millennium he didn't talk a whole lot about the tribulation, actually. You know, the, the either classical premillennialism or dispensational premillennialism, those are the ones who believe the rapture takes place before the uh, tribulation. It doesn't make any difference. Both of them throw the kingdom of God into the future, that thousand years. The amillennialists throw the kingdom up into heaven. The saints are reigning in the intermediate state. God wants us to understand what the church is supposed to be. Amen. We are supposed to be, as John says in Revelations 1 and 6, he has made us to be kings and priests on the earth to the glory of God. We are supposed to be demonstrating to the principalities and powers now that we can have dominion over sin. We do not need to be slaves to sin. Basically, premillennialists are just, you know, we're just biding our time. You know, we're trying to hang on. No, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence or forcefully advances and forceful men take hold of it. Amen. This is the time not to hunker down and hold on. This is the time to let God release his full power in us.